The passage before us this morning, in some ways it epitomizes much of the letter. In one passage, it captures the trajectory of the entire book. It starts with the pain of affliction, the deep discouragement, largely due to the tangled relationship that Paul has with the Corinthians. But then it describes how God shows up, and it describes the work of God in helping to change and repair the situation, leading to comfort and to joy for the apostle and for his co-workers. Last week during the Peace Pursuit seminar led by John and Laura, one of the ideas that was discussed um, was the importance of expectations, expectations in our lives and expectations for our relationships with one another, and the related question of whether our expectations are realistic or not. Unrealistic expectations are often a source of strife. They're often the source of of distress. For me, this passage is a good description. It's a, a reminder of what we should expect to experience through the model of Paul, what we should then expect to experience just um, in terms of our Christian ministry, our Christian service, but in our lives in general. It, it gives us this trajectory of, of a, a very um, disparate experiences. This passage also um, encourages us to see how evidence of genuine faith of God at work in our lives is used by the Lord to powerfully encourage individuals and churches. Genuine faith serves as evidence that God is at work among us. And so today we'll see one of the chief evidences of genuine faith that God uses to encourage and to strengthen his people. Would you stand for the reading of the Word of God? We are turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 16. Paul writes, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, It was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed in you in the sight of God. 
Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you, uh, said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, do not allow the flame of faith once kindled in our hearts to be quenched, but may you continually feed and renew it that it may ever shine amid our darkness. By your Spirit, strengthen us now for the sake of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. This passage begins um, with a reminder that Christian service often means suffering and discouragement along the way. Our, Our passage is a continuation of Paul's thought that began way back in chapter 2. Verses, um, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I'm just going to read this. It, it orients us to the situation that Paul is speaking about. Back in chapter 2, he writes, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. In chapter 2, Paul is explaining that he came to the city of Troas, which is kind of on the, 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 uh, the northwestern corner of Turkey. And he was expecting to meet with his fellow worker, Titus, um, in Troas. But as winter approached, Titus did not show up. And so even though there was this, he describes it as an an evangelistic open door. You know, it looked like um, uh, ministry was promising in this city of Troas. In spite of that uh, opportunity, the Apostle Paul decides with winter approaching, he needs to get over across the the Aegean Sea and then come to northern Macedonia. That would be today northern Greece. And um, the city of Corinth is in southern Greece. Okay, so he's in the north, they're in the south. There was apparently their second point. If he, you know, if Titus doesn't get to um, Troas before winter comes and, and travel shuts down, then uh, we'll meet in, in northern Macedonia. And this is what takes place. The reason why um, the Apostle Paul didn't remain in Troas, he didn't want to wait. His spirit was not at rest. He had to meet with Titus, uh, who had been given the task of delivering this all-important letter, a letter we do not have. The letter comes somewhere between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And the letter follows up a visit that the Apostle Paul made to the church at Corinth. And that visit with Corinth went just about as bad as you can expect. You always go in with good, high um, expectations, 
Well, this was a horrific meeting with the church as these traveling evangelists had come, taken root, and then had begun um, uh, spreading these kind of accusations. It's not clear how direct or how subtle they were, but nevertheless, it undermined the confidence of the church in the Apostle Paul so that when he came, he was kind of blindsided by this. And rather than stay and fight it out on this, uh, at the moment, he decided to, to go ahead and leave them, okay? So that's what's happened. Now he's had time to think about it, and he's written this, un, you know, this letter that we do not have. But what we do know about it is that it was addressed, um, it was addressing this, a, a particular person, apparently maybe the ringleader of this group who was especially responsible for spreading um, these uh, false truths and accusations. And it was a, Paul describes it as a sharply worded letter. It wasn't just about the offender. It was about the church and how they allowed this to take place and, and the, uh, the dangerous position they were placing themselves in. They were placing themselves under the potential wrath of God. It was a severe letter. A letter. Later on, he, he, he just meant, he alludes to this like, I, I even regretted, you know, for a moment, I, I second-guessed myself was what the Apostle Paul is saying here. But while he's still in Macedonia, um, uh, in, the, in northern Macedonia, he describes his experience even while he's awaiting Titus. He, he says, even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. Well, why? We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So what we seem to understand, and he alludes to this in the beginning of chapter 8, is that there was some affliction, some kind of hostile, cultural um, uh, hostility that was being directed towards uh, the churches where he's now, um, uh, he doesn't tell us the specific church, but uh, these churches in northern Macedonia in the region. So he describes this affliction from without, persecution, but he also describes this fear from within. Well, what is he describing there? Well, in the context, this is most likely his fear of what's going to happen in terms of his relationship with this church. And this fear goes in two directions, as we'll um, see. Now, let me go back to, we're still in chapter 2 here, and and this is just um, interesting because Paul ends in chapter 13 just by saying, so I took leave of the Macedonians, and I, I, I went over, I mean, I took leave of the people in Troas, and then traveled to um, northern Macedonia. And there he just stops. Now, if, you are the, if you're the Corinthians, and you're reading this letter, you naturally want to know the end of the story. Did you meet up with Titus? If you did meet up with Titus... What was his report, and how did you respond to the report from Titus? That's, you know, the Corinthians are kind of left a little bit with a cliffhanger here, you know, wanting to know what's the rest of the story. So then between, you know, the the second half of chapter 2 all the way through chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is taking this opportunity to talk about the nature of his ministry. He's taking the opportunity. He's got their attention, and now he's going to talk about how wonderful, how superior the new covenant is, in part, comparison to the old covenant that they had under Moses, that the, the Jews uh, had under the, the covenant made at Mount Sinai. 
He's able to describe the salvation that we have in Christ. He's able to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit has made us into new creatures and how we are being transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ through the work and the power of the third person, the the person of the Spirit. He's going all theological in this, mostly in this section. And it's only as he gets back to chapter 7, beginning in verse 5, that he tells the rest of the story. And he begins just with this reminder that he himself was in deep distress. And the fear within is, again, most likely he's, he's thinking about, you know, what, what is, uh, how, are the, the, how are the Corinthians, the church at Corinth, how are they going to respond to this sharply worded, a severe letter that he describes In chapter 11, he takes five verses of, second, uh, of the same letter. He takes five verses to describe the horrific suffering that he endured as part of his traveling apostolic ministry. And as if to top it off, in 2 Corinthians um, 11, verse 28, he, he writes this, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." His emotional and mental well-being were deeply affected by how the churches he was ministering to, that he was connected with, some of which he had founded, how they were doing. And this church in particular, this church in Corinth, (laughs) this was kind of the black sheep of the family, this church in particular was um, a a source of challenge and heartache for uh, the apostle Paul. And this goes to our expectations about what Christian ministry, what the Christian life in general will be like. You see, many people, especially when they're starting off as Christians, they hear the gospel message, they recognize the beauty, the truth of Christ's invitation to follow him, to trust in him as their Savior and Lord, when they understand what Christ has done through his death on the cross and, and is being raised on the third day, They accept, they embrace the message. And then what they expect is this. God's love shown so brilliantly in the giving in the person of Christ. How will this not lead then to a life where, you know, I'm going to church. I've committed my life to Jesus. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying every day. What's the expectation often? Well, the expectation is, is that as you go through the Christian life, in general, it's going to be smooth sailing. Maybe not completely smooth, but even when you hit the bumps, God will be there to pick you right back up, right? That was not the case with the Apostle Paul. As he describes, even you know, as he's awaiting um, uh, the report from Titus, He himself is deeply troubled. And it's not just because of the persecution. And in some ways, you know, given the the apostle's um, uh, temperament, he could deal with the persecution from without. That That was not the killer for him. The great difficulty was the discouragements, the defeats, you know, that he experienced from within the church the losses that he experienced, the failures in ministry from within. This appears to have been the most difficult part um, for the apostle. 
And you see, this helps inform what we should expect. Jesus warns us, doesn't he, when he says, no servant is greater than his master. And if the world has persecuted me, guess what? (laughs) They're going to persecute you. Jesus says in in, um, John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have what? Overcome the world. And that's what this passage is about. This is often the trajectory of the Christian life. Deep disappointments, both from within, within circles we don't expect it from, and from without. That's the obvious. We see it all around us, you know, in terms of the the, the changes in the surrounding world and the surrounding culture. Well, that doesn't surprise us so much. We don't like it, but that's not what really gets us. It's when it's it's in our own churches and, and when it's in our own internal relationships with one another. God uses these troubles to test us and refine us, hopefully to deepen our faith and our trust in him. What we need to know is it's all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan that God has for us. And this allows God then to show up as he does in this passage and to demonstrate his grace and his power and that he's present among us. And then this leads to comfort. And that's where he goes in this passage, that God is a God of comfort. The key verses here are verses 6 and 7. There the apostle writes, But God who comforts the downcast. And in this case, the downcast is the Apostle Paul. (laughs) The downcast is Paul and and, uh, his co-workers. God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing and mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Paul says, in the midst of their distress, God brought encouragement and strength and joy. How did God do this? It was an answer to prayer, to be sure. But it was not, sometimes as we think God will answer this, he didn't send an angel. (laughs) He doesn't send like this, you know, this spiritual uh, lightning bolt of grace. The comfort comes through a messenger. The comfort comes in the concrete, in the midst of this tangled web of relationships, first with Titus and then uh, uh, backing up on the response of the church. Well, in verses 13 through 15, he first talks about the joy he has that Titus was well-received. They received Titus, it says, with fear and trembling. And so, Part of the joy, the comfort that God gives to the apostle is through his fellow worker, Titus. Apparently, so this is very interesting. Paul, he communicates with his fellow worker, Titus. Titus, I've got a job for you. (laughs) Oh, yeah, what is it? (laughs) Well, you know that church (laughs) that sent me packing? That church. I have a letter, and it's not going to be an easy letter for them to read and then to read publicly. But I want you to take this letter to them. And I'm sure, Titus, I am sure that they're going to respond well. 
Now, as soon as he says this, so what, what Paul's saying is, look, I know these people. I know that this was what took place during my visit. And what's continuing to take place because of these false teachers um, is very damaging, very hurtful. In some ways, offensive. It's putting their salvation in, in jeopardy. Um, but they're still believers. This is what Paul is saying. God is still at work in them. And Titus, I'm confident that when you go to them, they're going to respond the way a Christian should respond. They're going to be humbled. They're going to be actually upset that they've, they've hurt me and, and, and wounded me so very deeply. They will respond well because they actually do love the Lord. Now, what's interesting here is when Titus returns, Paul is elated by, by, by Titus's report. And, and what that elation kind of tells me is Paul wasn't 100% sure that they would respond that way. He's more like 95%. And so he's a little worried that, in fact, they're going to throw Titus out. But that doesn't happen. They actually do respond the way he you know, um, communicated to his fellow workers. So part of it was, Paul says, they didn't put me to shame by the way Titus reacted. Paul was a little worried that he was going to be embarrassed by their response. So part of the comfort here, and, and this is 13 through 15, is just Titus's response. But Titus's response only backs up on the church itself, how the church responds to this letter. And we're, we're told that they, re, they responded not just with a, a kind of superficial repentance, but this is a deep repentance. The, the repentance that gets described here is as a repentance that is like unabashedly wholehearted. Um, it's, a, it's a very strong repentance that gets described here. Now, before looking at what that repentance looked like, there are a couple things that we can observe. First, the, the, the comfort Paul experienced goes beyond that um, the report of Titus and the response of the church helped to repair his relationship with them. Sure, that was very important to him. Okay? He wanted to have a good relationship with all the people that he worked with, and including this particular church. But the deeper issue is that in their repentance, and Paul alludes to this, that they were manifesting genuine faith. They were manifesting, the, 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 this was evidence that their salvation was real, that it was true. It was not false. Godly repentance is a sign of genuine faith. It's not the only sign of genuine faith, of course, but it is a chief sign. It is a necessary sign of genuine faith. And when the Corinthians showed genuine faith, by the way, they responded, they brought encouragement. This strengthened the Apostle Paul. This brought joy to him. And again, it wasn't just about the Corinthians themselves, but it was also a sign, a recognition. That genuine faith, that real McCoy, showed that God was present. In all the distress, in all the losses that he experienced, God was present and active, and he could see it. He could see the Spirit at work in the way that this church humbled themselves. By the way, they turned um, uh, and they corrected um, at least the, the specific situation that Paul uh, wrote about, because you see as we go through Second Corinthians, 
there's still this kind of minority, a small group, a remnant left in the church that is still creating problems. So this isn't across the board change. There's still challenges in this church. But in terms of the specifics of his letter, they responded as in a wholehearted manner. Here we can see a way in which we can deeply encourage one another. We don't always recognize this. When we demonstrate the character of Christ, when we demonstrate the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and there are different ways, when we find ourselves in a tangled relationship, how would most people, not Christians, deal with that tangled relationship? Well, usually we just get mad, you know, and we just, you know, we just are estranged. We just, we go our own ways. And sometimes that's inevitable, of course, in a fallen world. But when that doesn't happen, when there's a relationship that's, that's difficult and the Lord brings about genuine desire to repair and to restore that relationship between Christian brothers and sisters, this is a tremendous sign of, of God at work. Or when you see somebody who has been deeply, deeply uh, wounded, offended, and then they're willing, the offender comes to them, says, I'm sorry, I, I really hurt you. Will you forgive me? Again, when you see that forgiveness, especially when the offense is something quite serious, it's a testimony, isn't it, of God's present at work? When you see someone and they are just so generous, and maybe they don't even have a lot, but they're generous. We see this here in the church at the end of the year. <laughs> you know, people are calling the office saying, hey, how are we doing in terms of, you know, our, our budget? And, and um, what can I do to help? And sometimes these are people who you know probably don't have a lot of financial margins. And they give, oh, so encouraging, Because why? It's a genuine evidence of genuine faith. I see this regularly in a different kind of context. And unfortunately, I've seen this a lot in the last year and a half, two years. And that's when someone's been given this diagnosis of a terminal illness. They know that they're not going to recover. They may extend their life, but... They know, and at a certain point, they know that there's nothing left to be done. And I can tell you, over and over and over again, these individuals will say to me, pray for me. How can I pray for you? Pray that as I go through this, that I will bring glory to God. Pray that I, the Lord has been so good to me. He has blessed me in so many ways. Pray, I know I'm going to be tested. I know I'm going to be, you know, up and down, and it could be very painful. But pray that as I go through this, that I give God glory. I can tell you, I see this over and over and over again among our members who have faced this very situation. It is a and and it encourages me because I see God at work. It also encourages because I can see our ministry together, our, our love and our encouragement for one another is not in vain. Sometimes we do wonder, is it in vain? 
And then you see these evidences. And so often that evidence of faith shines most brightly when we are in crisis. It actually shines most brightly when we are facing adversity. It's not when things are going good. We expect people to, you know, uh, to sing God's praises when things are going well. I think this may be in part why God, you know, this, the Christian life is a series of losses, discouragements, challenges, but then God comes through. Sometimes he waits to the very last minute, <laughs> but he comes through and we see his present active among us. And that's what the Apostle Paul sees. And that's why he is so full of, of encouragement. He's strengthened and he is full of joy. Well, Paul doesn't simply tell us that the Corinthians repented. He goes on to describe what this repentance looked like. And he also draws a contrast between godly sorrow, you know, and worldly sorrow, showing us that a genuine godly sorrow for sin leads, in fact, to repentance. It leads us back to God. Uh, Again, we don't have the letter that Paul refers to here. Um, but Paul does tell us that this letter grieved the Corinthians, but he ultimately rejoices because they were, in verse 9, grieved into repenting. And he continues, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And this leads Paul to explain further what he means by godly grief by con- uh, contrasting it with a worldly grief or a worldly sorrow. Verse 10. In verse 10, he writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Okay, so that's the godly sorrow, the godly grief. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Okay, worldly grief produces death. So he recognizes that when people are faced uh, or perhaps confronted with a moral failing, when they are when they're confronted with some deviation from the will of God, when, when they're confronted with sin in their lives, with, it can create sorrow. It can create pain in their lives to be confronted with that. But depending on the outcome, in one case, that grief is a worldly grief. In the other, it is a godly grief. Well, what's the difference? Well, a worldly grief or sorrow is the sorrow one feels mostly because they got caught. It's the pain they feel because they've been humiliated or embarrassed at having their pride wounded. And and the grief really doesn't go much beyond this. And so a worldly grief may result in self-pity or despair, but it does not lead to genuine repentance. It doesn't lead the person back to God. Indeed, again, Paul says that worldly grief produces death. Probably the the chief example of this is Judas Iscariot, the disciple of Jesus uh, who betrayed him with a kiss. We're told that after the crucifixion, Judas felt great remorse and despair for his betrayal of Jesus. He tries to return the money um, uh, to the the, uh, religious leaders, but his remorse did not lead him back to God. It's not clear why. Maybe it was his bride. His pride just got in the way of true repentance. And so the end for Judas was he went out 
and he literally hung himself. But godly sorrow is not like this. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance is from the Greek word metanoia, a change of heart, a change of life, a turning from sin to God. The Corinthians did not try to minimize their behavior. They did not try and justify their actions. They did not go on the defensive. They did not play the victim. They did not try to shift the blame onto someone else. That's one we love to do. (laughs) All the way back from the beginning, it's the serpent's fault. It's the woman who gave me. It's blame shifting. This This is so much part of our sinful condition. Paul describes their repentance in verse 11. He says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. That is, the Corinthians wanted to clear themselves of the charges against them. They wanted to prove themselves ready and willing to make the necessary changes that that God ultimately required of them. He says, what indignation. That's strange. How would indignation be a part of repentance? Well, in the context, this would be an indignation or an anger with the sin. This is not an anger against Paul or against God, but but an anger at what the way that their sin ruptured the relationship they have with Paul. What fear? Previously, Paul had used this fear in the context of God and the necessity of appearing before Christ on the final day of judgment. What longing? That is, a longing to see the relationship with Paul and with the Lord repaired. What zeal? to be who God wanted them to be. What punishment? Okay, now that's interesting. How is punishment connected with repentance? Well, this punishment appears, um, um, well, let me, I was confused by this. I just, so when you're confused, sometimes it helps just to look at other translations. So I went to the NIV. The NIV translates this as, what readiness to see justice done. That's probably a good way to look at what punishment that is, in their repentance, that punishment was the idea of justice. It was the idea of, is restitution necessary here? What needs to be done to make things just, to make things right? And then he continues, at every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Okay, so in this case, it wasn't that they didn't, they weren't guilty as charged, they were. But the innocence in the matter is just referring to Now, the result of your repentance is that before God, you are innocent in his sight of any of these charges. This is the the result. This is the, the fruit of your repentance. In general, repentance is the turning from sin to God. And where a person does this, it seeks, as far as the offender is concerned, to try to make things right with both God and others. And this leads to Paul's very simple conclusion, verse 16. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. What does that mean? Does does this mean that the, the Corinthian church is now perfect? No, that's not what he's saying. I have complete confidence that your faith is the real McCoy. I have complete confidence that your faith is genuine. And as this leads into the next section, I I think he's saying, I have confidence that when I ask you for a big ask, you're going to come through for me. 
And that's the, the next couple of chapters that we are going to be heading into. Repentance is never easy, but it's always worth it. Ultimately, those who repent should recognize their repentance is a sign of the Holy Spirit's presence in their lives. See, not only the Apostle Paul should be encouraged, but the Corinthians should be encouraged. God is at work. They did a hard thing. May the Lord manifest himself more and more among us. May we here, this little local church, ECC, may we see genuine faith, whether it's in the form of repentance or spiritual perseverance in the face of suffering or the supernatural fruit of the Holy Spirit, maybe in the form of extreme generosity or some other manifestation of love. May we see evidences of genuine faith. May we be encouraged that God is at work, that he is present. And so as you go forth, may you be God's instrument of comfort and encouragement to one another. Well, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this very real situation, a situation we can all easily identify with. We thank you, Lord, for how your spirit was at work in and through the Apostle Paul. And we thank you, Lord, for this church with all their deficiencies, with all the the challenges and problems that they had. Lord, we're encouraged by their response. In fact, we're spurred on to, to demonstrate that same kind of faith manifested by the Corinthians. And so, Lord, we know that ultimately the comfort is from you because these things are your work. They're, they're the sign of your power, the sign of the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity at work within us. And we pray, Lord, that indeed your power would be more and more at work and present and visible within and through us. We pray it in the name, in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.